Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for this beautiful day, this beautiful spring day that you've blessed us with. Lord, we thank you that we have your word, that we have your truth, that we have your light, Lord, in the midst of the darkness all around us. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your truth this morning, that you would penetrate our hearts deeply, Lord, that we would be encouraged, strengthened, unified in the faith, Lord. Remove any distractions, remove any hindrances, remove anything, Lord, that would hinder us from seeing your beauty, your glory, your honor. Help us to give you the praise that you deserve today, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us, Lord, to forget that which lies behind, to reach forward to what lies ahead, to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Help us to fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life. Lord, help us to gaze on you, to fix our eyes on you, to look to you this morning. Please bless this message and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is Delighting in the God of the Psalms, Delighting in the God of the Psalms Part 2. My goal is to go a five-part series through the Psalms, and my goal is to increase our praise and worship of God. My goal is to increase our delight in God. And what does it mean to delight in God? It means to be satisfied in Him, to rejoice in Him, to find pleasure in Him above everything else. That's the goal of pretty much all of preaching, but specifically the goal of these teachings going through the Psalms. It's really hard to complain. It's really hard to be bitter. It's hard to be divisive. It's hard to be ungrateful. It's hard to fall into sin when you're praising and worshiping God when you're delighting in God, when you're rejoicing in him, it's hard to be sinning at the same time. Perhaps it's impossible, I'd even say, right? But that's the struggle that we see in many of the Psalms. Great men of God, great men of God who want to praise him, want to be in this constant state of delighting in the Lord, but yet they grapple with uncertainties. These doubts creep in, fears creep in, the circumstances of life approach them, and it's this battle with their heart and with their mind, and this struggle takes place, and we see this in Psalm 22. We see this in Psalm 42. We see this in many other Psalms, and we saw this last week in Psalm 73. This chief musician in David's choir, Asaph, here he was in Psalm 73, confessing that he came close to falling came close to stumbling. He was seeing the prosperity of the wicked and he even says at one point, is this all in vain? Is my faith in vain? Is following God all for nothing? Where did he find answers? He found answers in the sanctuary of God. He looked to God and he found the answers he was looking for. I love how he concludes towards the end of chapter 73, Psalm 73, Verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But God. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what we see throughout the Psalms. But God, yet God. Nevertheless, God. God is good. He reigns. He's in control. As David says in Psalm 63, 3, 
Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's where the psalmist run to. Because your loving kindness is better than life, because you are good, O oh God, because you reign, because you're glorious, because you're beautiful, I will trust you. I will continue to move forward in the faith, even though life doesn't make sense at times. So the Psalms are so needed in our lives because if we're honest, we all need help. We need help to praise and worship God. We need help in the midst of the struggles of life, the temptations of life, the trials, the ups and downs, and the fickleness of our hearts. One day we're praising God, we're worshiping Him, we're on fire for the Lord. The next day we're struggling. The next day we're like, where are our hearts at? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thine throne above. That's my heart. That should be our hearts to want to be on fire every day for the Lord, to want to praise and worship him and delight in him every day. We need his help. The Psalms help us. So that's my prayer, that we would find hope and joy and encouragement and spiritual food for our souls in the Psalms. And not only in these teachings as we're going through the Psalms, but that this would encourage you to meditate on the Psalms to memorize the Psalms, to pick maybe a Psalm or a couple verses in a Psalm that relate to maybe something that you've gone through in life or are going through in life and cling to it. Bring this back to your memory so that maybe if you're at work or wherever you're at, it's something that you recall to your mind. It's something that I do quite often. Psalm 97.9, for thou, O Lord, are high above the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. That's been my verse. That's been my song. If you were to follow me around the school for the last eight months and be anywhere within a close vicinity of me, you would hear that song probably two or three times a day. I won't sing it to you right now, but if it, I grew up listening to this song in church, and for whatever reason, it's something that just comes to my mind throughout the day. I'm so tempted to sing it, but... We'll have Leah do it another time. And the people, I've said this before, but the people at my work and the kids, they think I'm crazy. But then that's okay, right? I want to be singing unto the Lord. And there's days I go out onto that playground and maybe you see that my face is a little tan or a lot tan because I'm out in the sun all day with these kids and I'm wearing my suit and tie and I'm sweating and I'm struggling with certain things maybe in life and the kids are you know, falling down and scraping their knee and fighting with other kids and I'm frustrated and then I walk away and I just sing to the Lord and I praise him and I call psalms to my mind and it's something that I encourage you guys to do as well. We want to say like David, Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. We want his praise to always be on our hearts and minds coming from our mouths. Psalm I want to turn our attention to today is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. We'll read it in just a minute. I mentioned last week out of the 150 Psalms, these 150 Psalms, they are broken down into five different books, five different sections. Most of your Bibles above each of these sections will say which book it is. And so book one is Psalm 
1 through Psalm 41. And so in most of your Bibles above Psalm 42, it will then say book 42. And these Psalms are grouped by topic. And the first section is God beside us, as one commentator has helpfully stated. God beside us, Psalm, 40, Psalm 1 through 41, the majority of these Psalms can be summed up in God is beside us. Psalm 42 and following is God going before us. And then book three, God around us. Book four, God above us. Book five, God among us. And so my goal is to go through all five different sections. Last week we looked at Psalm 73, God going before us. Today we're talking about God being beside us just to give us a little flavor of the Psalms, a little bit of each section of the Psalms. Now when we look at Psalm 16, it says a miktam of David. Probably see that in most of your Bibles, a miktam. And I looked this up. Many commentators, scholars really don't know what this word means. Some think it means a writing. Some say that the Hebrew word is closely translated to a golden engraving and are saying that the certain Psalms that David wrote and other psalmists, this appears several times, this phrase, it refers, it refers to gold and a precious psalm. Although other psalms that have this in front of it, right before verse 1, some commentators go, but these psalms don't seem like they're anything special or anything above the other psalms. So then it makes them go back and say, no, we don't really think it's, it means golden psalm or a precious psalm. And so they think maybe it has to do with an interlude or something to do with the singing of the psalm. So hope that doesn't confuse you. But anyhow, Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God. I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood, nor shall I take their name upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now some psalms begin with a question like the psalm right before this, Psalm 15.1. O Lord who may abide in your tent. So some psalms begin with a question. Some psalms begin with a statement most of them a statement about God, you are holy God, or something of the effect of describing God and his goodness and his righteousness and his glory. But here in this psalm, we see a pleading, an appeal, a petition to God. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. The NIV translates it, keep me safe. The Legacy Standard Bible, keep me. Several translations say protect me. 
or perhaps guard me, guard me, O God, for I take refuge in you. We don't know exactly where David was or his circumstances when he wrote this psalm. Some psalms tell us right above it the circumstances that David and others were in when the psalm was written. But we can, we have some clues in scripture that leads us to believe that perhaps he was being pursued by his enemies, being pursued by Saul in some sort of conflict by the way that he's crying out to God for help. Help to be kept. In Psalm 17, 8, he says, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 37, 28, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved, same Hebrew word. They are protected. They are kept forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. David's prayer here in Psalm 16.1 is what he knows to be true in Psalm 37.28. The Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. He preserves them forever. David knows this to be true, yet because of his circumstances, this is his plea for the Lord. Preserve me, keep me, protect me, Lord, for I have found refuge in you. I take refuge in thee. David saying, hey, Lord, I'm your child. Here I am, Lord, protect me. I'm not like the wicked who turn to other gods, who turn to things in this world, who turn to other shelters and other refuges, so to speak. I turn to you. So here I am, Lord, save me, protect me. David starts many of his psalms with this plea, this petition that God is his refuge, God is his shelter, God is his trust, so therefore God help me, save me, protect me. Psalm 7 verse 1. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Psalm 11, 1 and 2. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? In that psalm he's talking about wrestling with his soul, that his soul is telling him to flee. And he thinks that that is dishonoring to the Lord. So he's saying, Lord, I'm going to run to you as my refuge. I'm not going to flee. The battle of the heart and mind, as I talked about. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 31.1 In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Psalm 57, 1 and 3. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me for my soul takes refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Verse 3, he will send from heaven and save me. And Psalm 71, 1 and 2. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. God, I'm calling on you to keep your word. I'm calling you to keep me, to protect me, to preserve me. Be my shield, O God. Guard me from my enemies over and over and over. This is David's plea to the Lord, constantly going through battles. 15 to 20 years, some scholars 
commentators say that David was on the run from Saul. Several times he had the opportunity to wipe Saul out, yet he was a man of integrity, a man of character, and he would not do that to the Lord's anointed. Many times David's enemies were after him and surrounded him, and many times David ran to the only one who he knew could save him, the Lord. Is that how we pray? Is that how we plead with the Lord? Do we run to him always? Are, is he your refuge? Is he your strength? Many people run to many things in this world when they're tempted, when they're tried, when they're hurting. The world is always there with their arms outstretched to take you in. But as I was mentioning to the manager at Panda Express the other day for lunch, I go there on my lunch break at work. I don't know why that came to my mind, but I said, we're like salmon swimming upstream. He goes, I just started reading my Bible because the Lord convicted me. He said, Nick, you need to start reading your Bible in Panda Express. And I said, yes, Lord, but it's on my phone. And he said, no, you need to bring your Bible in there. And I said, yeah, but that, I've done that before. And I, I don't know, it was just like this inner struggle. I'm just confessing it right now. And so finally, I gave in. After th- I just felt this overwhelming feeling in my heart, I need to bring my Bible in there and start reading it. Out in the open, and I don't really care what people think. So I started doing it. And then one day I met four Mormons there and started talking to them. Well, Latter-day Saints, that's what they like to be called now. So I invited them to church. Then the assistant manager at Panda Express came up to me. Oh, you're reading your Bible. Are you, are you LDS? Are you a Christian? Started a big conversation with him. A pastor from a local church came up to me one day. Oh, are you a Christian? What are you reading? Can I sit down and talk to you? So then we had a great conversation about the Lord. Then the manag- store manager came up to me. Oh, are you a Christian? You're reading your Bible? He goes, I'm talking to a Jehovah's Witness lately, and he's been showing me this and that about the scripture. And so then I had a dialogue with him. And, and person after person has been coming up and different people I've been inviting to church. And it's like, it's as if the Lord's like, see, see what happens when you obey me? See what happens when you listen to me? I have a reason for this. And so other Christians have been encouraging me, non-believers I've been trying to witness to, little things like that to where we just heed the voice of the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I'll do what you're asking me to do. So I told the store manager, we're like salmon. Christians are like salmon swimming upstream. It's easy to float down the Boise River, right? Did that last summer. Hurt my backside on the rocks. Still in pain, maybe. Listen to heed the instruction when they say when you go down those drops, you know, lift up, lift yourself up because there's rocks underneath. But it's easy to go down. Just lay there. You lay there for a couple hours. It's relaxing. You can fish and go downstream. Christians, we go upstream. We're fighting against the mold. We're fighting against the culture. We're like salmon going upstream. And I don't know a lot about salmon, but I believe that's how they get their color. It builds character when we go against the world, when we fight the good fight of faith, when we say no, like the early Christians did, to Caesar. No, Caesar isn't Lord. We're not offering a pinch of incense to Caesar. No, Jesus is Lord. You can persecute us. You can whip us, throw us in jail. You can throw us to the lions. You can kill us. Jesus is Lord. So that's basically what I'm telling the store manager in front of all these people looking over. I'm like, man, you got to take up your cross. You got to follow the Lord. You got to deny yourself. I go, that's what it means to be a Christian. 
And then at one point he said, it's never too late, you know. And I said, yeah, the thief on the cross. But Jesus said, your soul is required of you today. He, he talked about a man who said, I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to tear down the barns that I have. Look at all this stuff I have. I, I need to build bigger barns and store all these treasures on earth. And Jesus said, oh, his soul is required of him today, you fool. Store for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. For here on earth, they can be destroyed by those things. And so I'm telling the manager all these things, and I think he probably had to go back to work, but he's like, okay, I got to go. And so hopefully we can have some more conversations. But what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, it means to be different from the world. Christians, called out ones, holy ones, that's what it means to be holy, separate, unto the Lord, different from the world. At times we become like the world to win them to Christ, but too many Christians, I believe, are becoming more like the world in the way of the world system, sinning like the world as one pastor. I need to take shots with Justin Bieber to supposedly win him to Christ. It later came out that he was cheating on his wife and fell away from the faith. Oh, but he's been restored to ministry already. But that's a whole nother story. We should want to pursue holiness, Christ-likeness, to be different. And for the topic today, to be like David. To say, Lord, you are my refuge. I run to you always, constantly. Isaiah fifty-seven thirteen. But he who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God knows those who take refuge in him. The Hebrew word is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 4.1 where it says that Adam knew Eve. Adam had relations with Eve. Intimate knowledge. God knows you spiritually, intimately when you find him as your refuge and your stronghold. So it's no surprise that David is called a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. He wasn't someone who just got in trouble and that's when he cried out to the Lord. He wasn't someone who lived for himself and then on Sunday, so to speak, checked off the box. When his enemies were pursuing him, then it was time to cry out to the Lord. No, he was a man who was continually going before the Lord. That's what he says in verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. And if Psalm 119 was written by him, as many believe, Psalm 119 verse 10, with all my heart I have sought you. That's David's heart, to seek the Lord continually, to seek the Lord with everything. The question for us, is that our heart? To seek him above all else, to seek him continually. And you say, but I'm busy. I have kids. I have a job. I've got some really cool hobbies. Well, I do too. But in the midst of all these things, God must be first and foremost in our lives, above everything else. He's given us everything to enjoy, but we must enjoy him above everything else. And that's what we can learn from David today. Now, I'd like to do a whole message just on one, on the first verse, finding our refuge in God but we have 10 more verses, so I want to walk through these one by one, spending a little bit of time on this verse or that verse and a little bit more on some others. But that's the question for us today is are we seeking the Lord 
at all times? What derails your prayer life? What derails you from getting in the word and meditating on his word day and night? That's the question for us today. Look at verse two. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. What does Lord mean? King, author, the one who is in charge, the one who is in control. David says, you are my Lord. I often use the example of a landlord, which we just moved out of our apartment, not apartment, but our rental house. And we had a landlord that was, let's just say, very meticulous to the point where Leah spent, I think she clocked in 14 hours of cleaning that house before we moved out. She dusted every corner of that house. She made sure that that house looked spick and span so that when the landlord came through, she looked, we wanted that deposit back. We did everything we could to get that security deposit back. And Lord willing, she's going to mail us that check soon. (laughs) Cheryl, if you're listening, please. (laughs) And so... She is a Christian. She goes to Calvary Chapel Stars. So we've had some good conversations about that. But Leo went up to her. She's like, I've put in 14 hours here, please. And I'm like, Shh. and I was watching the kids so Leah could go over there and mop the floors and take down the light fixtures. And she was getting everything dialed in. That's our landlord. We answer to her. And, sh- you know, she could say, I'm going to give you $100 back if she wants. And we maybe could then fight it at that point. I don't know. But. Point being, she's in charge, right? It's her house. It's not our house. We don't own it. It's her light fixtures. It's her carpet. It's her backyard. And if she walks in there and sees a bunch of stains on that carpet, then she can deduct that from our security deposit. And so for whatever reason, we we don't really use the word Lord in our culture much, but that's one area we do, a landlord, and they are in control. They are the owner of the property or the house. David says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. God, you're in control of my life. God, I answer to you. I'm going to live my life fully to you, Lord. Some people, some Christians don't see God as Lord. They don't see Jesus as Lord. They see Jesus as someone to just add to everything else in their life, a sidekick, someone that they can look to and maybe visit on a Sunday morning and then go live for themselves. But they're not submitting to him as Lord the other six days of the week and really aren't on the seventh either. Is Jesus Lord in your life? Is God your Lord? That's what David is saying here. He says, I have no good besides you. He's echoing what Asaph said in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Beside you, I desire nothing. Beside you, I have no good. Really? Really, David? Really, Asaph, there is no other good? Genesis 1, 4, God said, let there be light. And God said the light was good. Genesis 26, 7, it says Rebecca was beautiful. It's the same Hebrew word used here in Psalm 16, 2. Good, beautiful, something that's pleasurable to the eyes. Deuteronomy 125 speaks of the land being good. There's different parts of the Old Testament where it says the word is good. David said, I have no good besides you. 
Asaph said, I desire nothing but you. Isn't it good to desire your spouse? Isn't it good to have desires in this world? To which I answer, I believe yes. I believe what David's saying here in Psalm 16:2, and what Asaph is saying in Psalm 73:25 is that I desire you, Lord, so much. You are so good that comparatively to you, there is no good in this world. Compared to you, I desire nothing. It's like the ocean compared to a bucket of water. That's how I desire you. That's how beautiful you are to me. That's how glorious and awesome you are, Lord. Of course sushi is good. Of course food is good. Of course the burger that I had at Crave the other night was good. Lee and I finally got to go out on a date after, I don't know how long it was, a couple months. It was time. And so last time we went to Crave, she almost got sick because the burger was so good. Let's just say she had to take her time. Should have taken her time to eat it. Okay, don't get mad at me for that. Came to my mind as well. Getting in trouble today. But I told, I said, I want to take a picture of this burger and show my mom because it was like this big and we almost needed a fork and knife to cut it up. And then we had sushi there and a whole bunch of other things. Some dessert ball that they brought out that was just pure sugar. But nevertheless, food is good. Let's be honest. I was even talking to the PE teacher at the school that I work at just about these certain things that he makes during camping trips. And he said, my, and I forget exactly what it was, but here we were both hungry. It was almost lunchtime. And he's talking about this doughy sugary thing that his wife puts over the campfire when they go camping. And I'm like, I can eat a lot of that. Cookies and carbs. I told Leah lately. I'm like, carbs. Like, I can just devour carbs. I don't know about you guys. But it's these people that are on the keto thing only. I don't know how you do that. Congrats to you. But, and they had Krispy Kreme at work as well. It's like carbs. They're so good. Anyways, yes, David, there's other things that are good, right? But comparatively to God, David says, I don't care about this. At least that's how I see it. God, I have no good beside you. I desire nothing but you. And that's the battle of every Christian, is to see these things in light of who God is. Because we laugh and we can joke and say, oh, food's good and these hobbies are good. But if we're not careful, those things can start grabbing hold of our lives. The Bible calls them idols. They can start being an idol very quickly. And for many of us, it can be different things. But whatever your hobby is or whatever you like to do, whatever your thing is, it can very quickly turn from being a good thing or an enjoyment to an idol. And so we need to say like David, I have no good beside you. We need to say like Asaph, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Proverbs 3 talks about wisdom. And it says, Wisdom is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. Here's the, this proverb, I believe it's Solomon, telling his son to look to wisdom, to strive to be wise, and that nothing compares to wisdom. And many commentators believe it's referring to Christ because in Colossians 2, 3, it says in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So really, nothing you desire should compare to knowing Jesus Christ. 
Verse 3. Psalm 16.3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. David said in Psalm 119.63, I believe he wrote Psalm 119, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. David delighted in those who delighted in the Lord. Those who resembled God, he delighted in. Those who reflected God. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. We're not majestic in and of ourselves. Christians aren't majestic. Believers have no majesty or splendor in and of themselves. Yet David says they are the majestic ones. Who? The saints, the holy ones. Why? Because they resemble the majesty of God. They resemble his glory, his honor, his power, his truth to the world. And so David says they are majestic. And he doesn't say in whom is my delight, but in whom is all my delight. He uses strong language to describe this loyalty, this bond, this love, this delight that he has for saints. And one person that comes to my mind is Jonathan. If you remember the story of David and Jonathan, Jonathan being the son of King Saul, they had such a strong bond. Jonathan was willing to lay down his life for David. He covered for David on several occasions to the point where his dad Saul, King Saul, tried to put Jonathan to death. He was already trying to put King David to death. Jonathan stepped in and was like a middleman. And listen to what David said when Jonathan died. Second Samuel verse one, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Some liberal scholars have tried to say that, and I don't want to get much into that, but David and Jonathan, they were... They loved each other in a sinful way, let's just say. And so they try to pull whatever they can from the Bible and build it around this LGBTQ philosophy and satanic doctrine that it really is. And you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. There's a lot in the scripture. And that's what they do with the relationship with David and Jonathan. Of course, David is a man after God's own heart. Of course, David kept God's law and his precepts. Although with Bathsheba, he fell away and writes a whole psalm, which maybe we'll get into at some point, Psalm 51, to confess that. Of course, what David is saying, just like David is saying in verse 2, I have no good beside you, is he's using strong language to say that Jonathan and his love for him was extraordinary, right? Because David's saying, I love women, but man, this bond that I had with Jonathan was even more than that. Pretty amazing. Jonathan put his life on the line for David. David's mighty men did the same thing for him. If you remember one time David was so thirsty, he says, oh, that I would have a drink of water. It says his mighty men went through the stronghold of the enemy. I believe it was the Philistines. They put their life on the line. They went to this well. They got him the water. They brought it back. If you remember the story, what does David do? So thirsty, he pours out the water. He says, I cannot drink this. 
I think he's saying, look, you guys laid down your life for me. Far be it from me that I could drink this water. It's an offering to God. Just as you guys have offered your lives for me, this is now my offering. Imagine being so thirsty, parched, and you have that cup of water and pouring it out to the Lord. That's how David loved these mighty men. That's how David loved his fellow soldiers. That's how David loved Jonathan. And that's what David's saying here in verse three. That's how much I love the saints of God. I'm a companion of all those who fear you, O Lord. Is that how you fear? Or is that how you view others who fear the Lord? God wants us to have that camaraderie. He wants us to have that fellowship. He wants us to have that kind of compassion and care and love for each other. So that under the new covenant in Galatians 6.10, it says, do good to everyone. Do good to all men, but especially the household of God. There should be a special care for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It should surpass anything that comes our way in this world. It should surpass any picture that you see in the world of true love and companionship, camaraderie. You know, I think of the military and how these whatever branch of the military you talk about, but there's certain branches where it seems like there's just this camaraderie. Don't leave anyone behind. Like they have each other's back. Carries over into the fire system, the fire department and police. This close bond. Shouldn't the Christian church put these to shame in our love for one another? And I believe one of the reasons why much of the Christian church doesn't resemble that. There's many reasons, but one is we just don't spend enough time together. The early church continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to prayer, and fellowship. Fellowship, koinonia, means sharing with one another. Sharing in the blood and the bread of Christ, his sacrifice that he gave for us. They were selling their stuff, giving it to the poor, says that they didn't even claim that anything that they owned was theirs. They were willing and ready to give things up for one another. And you see what God wants us to see in terms of our love for one another in that picture in Acts chapter 2 in the book of Acts. They spent their lives together. It's hard. We work 40 hours, 50 hours a week. We're busy. And because of that, I don't believe that you can meet for an hour or two hours on the weekend and have that bond. There's just not enough time. So, Lord willing, this summer, pray about that. Lee and I are looking to do more Bible studies, maybe a men's group, a women's group, maybe go down to Boise more and spread the gospel, um, pass out food to the poor. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but that's my heart, to strive for this, to be able to say like David, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. When you see examples in the scripture of men who love God and loved his saints, it should spurn us to do the same. That's what I see here with David. So may God help us. Verse four. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood nor shall I take their names upon my lips. Some commentators speak of how it was a practice of false religions to pour out drink offerings to their gods. Just as I mentioned, David poured out water to God. 
These false religions would pour out wine. Perhaps they would kill a, they would offer a sacrifice and then they would mingle the wine with the blood and they would either drink it or they would pour it out to their God. And David says, I will have none of that. I will not pour out their libations of blood. I will not take their names upon my lips. Verse four, Exodus 23, 13 says, do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. That was in the law. God wanted the Israelites to be so far from foreign gods that they wouldn't even talk about them. They wouldn't even name them. They would despise them. And that the name of God, Yahweh, would be on their lips at all times. And so that's what David is saying here. He's separating himself. He's saying, I am holy, separate to the Lord. I will not take part in these things. In the New Covenant, in Ephesians 5.3, Paul says, Do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Some commentators believe Paul's referencing back to the Old Covenant, where God says, Don't allow these gods to be named on your lips. Many of us didn't wake up this morning tempted to call out to Baal or Moloch or Ashtoreth. That probably wasn't on your list today of things you're fighting. That probably wasn't a struggle for you. But for the Israelites and those who feared God, believe it or not, they struggled with that. And it's mind-boggling to us today, at least to me. Why would they search after these other gods? Why would they even talk about them? How could Solomon, a man who spoke to the Lord and God answered his prayer and gave him all these riches and gave him the kingdom and blessed him with the house of the Lord, then turn to these other gods. It doesn't make sense. And perhaps if those saints of old look forward, they would see some of the things we do today and go, that doesn't make sense either. Really? That hobby, that distraction, that thing in life is taking all their time away? They have the scripture, 66 books, all inspired by God, and they don't read it. They don't meditate on it. They don't pray to the Lord. They're just fixed on this and that. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it that way. Do not let immorality, impurity, or greed even be named among you. Don't even talk about these things. Don't even look to these things. Don't even pursue these things. Have the heart of David. Just as he wouldn't go after the things of his day, may we not go after the things of our day. Verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. So in verse 1 and 2, he talks about the Lord. He transitions for his love for the saints. He talks about unbelievers in verse 4 and how he distances himself from them and their practices. And now he's back to the Lord. That's what I love about the Psalms. Yes, they deviate from time to time. There's confession in there. They talk about their struggles, but most of the Psalms very quickly, they're right back to the Lord. They're right back to praising him. David says, the Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. And he echoes this in Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. David's cup overflowed with joy, with peace, with contentment. When David was seated at the Lord's table, 
when David looked to God at his shepherd and obeyed God as Lord, his cup overflowed. That should be your desire and my desire. That our cup should be so overflowing with the love and joy and peace of the Lord that we should be so filled with his spirit, there's no room for contamination. There's no room for garbage in our lives because we can say our cup is overflowing. Psalm 11.6 contrasts this with the cup of the wicked. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. We see this predominant theme in the first section of the psalm, Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. This predominant theme is the contrast of the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. Throughout almost all of the psalms, a great majority of them is this contrast, and we see it here in Psalm 16. Their cup is wrath, Psalm 11, 6. David's cup is blessing. Their cup is sorrows, Psalm 16, 4. David's cup is joy. Their cup is one of slippery places, Psalm 35, 6, and Psalm 73, 18. David's cup is one of pleasant places, as we see here in verse 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. David, or the wicked, curse and spurn the Lord, Psalm 10, 3. David blesses the Lord, Psalm 16, 7. The wicked plan iniquity upon their bed. Psalm 36, 4. David is instructed in the way of righteousness by the counsel of the Lord and meditates on him and is instructed by him at night. Verse 7. The wicked will not stand in the judgment of God. Psalm 1, 5. They will be like chaff before the wind. Psalm 35, 5. While David says he will not be shaken. Psalm 15, 5 and Psalm 16, 8. The wicked devise treachery all day long, Psalm 38, 12, while David sets the Lord continuously before him, Psalm 16, 8. And the wicked's right hand is full of bribes, Psalm 26, 10. David's right hand clings to the Lord, verse 8. And that's what we see. Which path are you on? The Psalms are front-loaded. I believe those who compiled the Psalms said, we're going to make sure to put these Psalms at the front, right from the get-go. Which path are you on? Are you on the path of sorrows, the path of affliction, the path of destruction, the path of the wicked? Or are you on the path of life, the path of righteousness, the path that follows the Lord and calls him God? That's the the path of blessing, the path of of joy. Let's look at the last four verses. It says, I have, con- I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore this is quoted by peter in acts chapter 2 verses 25 through 28 he quotes verses 8 through 11 and he uses it as a pretext for the resurrection after all these jews were 
gathered together in Jerusalem and they saw the apostles and disciples speaking out in tongues from other languages and they're seeing this miraculous power going on and they, they don't know what to do and Peter gets up and he starts preaching. And he says, Jesus rose from the grave. We are witnesses of this fact. And then he quotes this psalm, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And he says, this is proof. David prophesied a thousand years ago. He didn't say a thousand years ago, but that's when this was written. That Jesus would rise. That Jesus' body would not see decay. Verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Peter says, look, David died, David was buried, and he says, look, we have David's tomb over here today. Look, David's body's over there. It's as if he wanted to take them over. Look, do you want to go see David's decaying body? But Jesus is alive. He rose. Go find it. Go ahead, present the body if he's not risen from the grave. It's essentially the argument that Peter is giving them. Jesus rose. He did not decay. Every other person who's died has undergone decay. David was prophesying of the resurrection of Christ. And Paul, in Acts chapter 13 as well, quotes part of these verses. You can do a whole study on that as well. But I want to begin to bring this to a close. The last verse. I talked earlier about Psalm 97.9, a verse that I bring with me at work a lot. This is another psalm or another verse from this psalm that I cling to often. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It's not partial joy. It's not temporary joy. It's not temporary pleasure. It's fullness of joy and it's pleasures forever. Satan wants to deceive us. He wants to rob us of this joy. He wants to rob us of the anticipation of the joy that we'll have in heaven and the pleasures at the right hand of God. That's his game plan. That's his mantra. That's what he's very, very good at. Christianity is dry. It's unfulfilling. It's tedious. It's dull. It's monotonous. That's his sales pitch to you and I and to many Christians go for these things in the world this is what he tells us if you really want to be fulfilled pursue yourself pursue the pleasures of this world if you really want to be happy live for yourself your desires your wants wherever your heart leads you follow your heart follow your dreams live your best life now it's all about you. Do what you want. Doesn't it feel good when you hear that? There's a part of you, yeah. And that's, he's speaking through supposed prophets, preachers, evangelists, pastors, leaders in the Christian church are being led like puppets to say these things to their congregations. It's all about you. Go on Joel Osteen's Twitter and some of these people's Twitter page and count how many times you see the word you. I pulled it up the other day and I said, let's just see what he posted today. Let's just see what some of these prosperity, health and wealth pastors who live in $75 million mansions and have yachts in every part of the world and steal from the poor. Let's just see what he said today. And it was like, you are awesome. You are great. You are loved. 
and they give you one part of the story. They always do that. God loves you so, so much. You're held in the arms of God. His angels are there for you or something like that. And people just feel so good. They don't preach the whole counsel of God. They don't preach all of the word. They can't say like Paul in Acts 20, your blood's on your own hands. I've preached to you the full counsel of God. They don't touch on wrath. They don't touch on holiness. There are certain subjects in the scripture where they say, nope, we don't preach on that. We don't talk about abortion. We don't talk about homosexuality. We don't talk, wait, you don't talk about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11? You don't talk about the Psalms where David says, I was knit in my mother's womb? You don't talk about these things? Why? Why don't you talk about these things? Are you afraid that people aren't going to come back to your church? Are you afraid that you're not going to be making as much money? Follow the money trail is something I always say. We need to not be ashamed, as Paul says in the book of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We need to not be ashamed of any part of God's word, any part of who God is, any of his attributes. We need to boldly proclaim and be like those early Christians. You want to throw me to the lion's den? You want to do whatever you want to me? You want to kill me? Jesus is Lord. I stepped foot in the world for several years. I stopped going to church. I thought, yeah, I want to see what the world has to offer. Yeah, the church does seem kind of boring. It is, yeah, I don't, it is kind of unfulfilling. It is kind of monotonous. Satan was able to get a foothold in my life. And I was miserable for those years. I was empty. I was constantly searching. Always grasping at the air. Never fulfilled. And by God's grace, he convicted me. By God's grace, he never allowed me to go too far off the deep end. I was always, there was always just something in the back of my mind that knew this wasn't true. This wasn't right. I became a follower, just following the crowd, doing my own thing, things of which I'm ashamed of today. But by God's grace, he broke me. He humbled me. He brought me back like Asaph to where I could say it was in the sanctuary where I found the answers that I needed. I found the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty. And so now I can proclaim like David in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He's given me a glimpse of that joy. When I said, okay, Lord, I'll serve you. I surrender everything to you. What do you want me to do, Lord? Lord, there's certain things I don't want to do. There's certain things I don't like to do. But whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And I've, as I've said before, here I am. I don't, this wasn't in the cards for me. I didn't want to be in front of people. But I said, Lord, your will be done, whatever you want. And that's still my prayer. I still wrestle with that. Lord, your will be done. Lord, you know me better than I know myself. You know my insecurities. You know my weaknesses. You know, Lord, there's certain things I don't want to do, but I want to do your will. I want to be fulfilled in you. I want to find my joy in you. And every time I step out in faith, he blesses me. He gives me joy. He gives me peace. Peter calls it in 1 Peter 1.8, an inexpressible and glorious joy. And so that's my fight, to fight for joy every day in the Lord.
so that there's nothing that this world has to offer me so that I can say I hate evil. I hate the things this world offers. Lord, I want more of you. I want to be in your presence. I want to be fulfilled in you. And that's my hope and prayer for you, that you would seek the Lord and that you would say like David, I have no good beside you. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of exceeding joy. Lord, your word says that this world has nothing to offer us. It's like a broken cistern, Lord. Satan props it up and paints it and makes it look appealing at times. Guard us, Lord, from him. Guard us from the evil one as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. Deliver us from the enemy. Guard us from his schemes. Help us to run to you, to make you our refuge, our stronghold, our strength. Lord, whatever it is that entices us, may we see right through it and may we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne on high. Help us to look upon you, Jesus, to gaze upon your beauty and meditate as David says in your temple. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.